Welcome to Tuesday Home Time and on air until 6pm with Joan Bartlett and also streaming for a week and podcasting later in the week on 3cr.org.au. But for now, the carnage continues in Burma. Speaking with Debbie Stothard, part two of the interview with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff on the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Vaccines for the Pacific nations, maybe later rather than earlier, with Nick McClellan. The 10-year war on Syria with Dr Tim Anderson. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, and I'm sorry, apologies, bitter disappointment for you, because I know you've tuned in especially, listener, to hear the wisdom of the week that was as analysis of the events surrounding Her Most Gracious Majesty and the gang of hangers-on who constitute the biggest doll bludgers in the land, but unfortunately, we'd need a lot more time in the week that was allows to cover the matters adequately. So important and critical are they to our lives. In fact... Jan, you might consider devoting the whole program to the matter next week. Two hours might almost be long enough. No, can't help myself. One comment. An obvious working class bloke in London telling the camera what a tragedy that this little kid had been deprived of his rightful inheritance because he can't have the title Prince. Poor little rich boy. Working class bloke feeling sorry for the gang that lives in the lap of luxury on his taxes and the taxes of his working class comrades. Her most gracious did say she was sorry the lot in California couldn't cope with the backbreaking life of a working royal. Surely working royal has to be one of the world's great oxymorons. So on to the less important matters of the week, like the government providing more essential handouts to the caring business class, offset by cutting out handouts to the non-caring business class who bludge on the public purse. Ingrates. Expressed beautifully by great retailer Jerry Harvey for me and Harvey for me, while declining to return six milli had received in JobKeeper payments. Mere pocket money to Jerry pointing out that his ubiquitous retail chains doubling its profits, paying down debt and substantially raising its dividend to the hard-working shareholders, the way to deal with the undeserving poor expressed beautifully, as I say, with Jerry's very compassionate comment that the bad thing about giving money to the homeless is it helps a whole heap of no-hopers survive for no good reason. Good point, Jerry. Why should the homeless survive? Why non-survival is so much kinder, gets them out of their misery. And they may just be heaps of no-hopers because they cuddle up together to keep warm, which they wouldn't have to if they didn't survive, didn't clog up footpaths and gutters, public spaces where retailers can put tables and chairs and advertising boards, useful contributions to society. Some days we must all feel as we pick up the morning print media that the big world news of the day is Jerry and his highly profitable retail chain with workers paid by the public purse. Welfare money that is not wasted on the undeserving. Until we realise, oh no, it's not exactly news. The, The media giants have simply sold their front pages and many, many inside pages to informing us about Jerry's great offers and given the massive costs of all that advertising, which the record profits and dividends show is not a waste of Jerry's not so hard earned, 
Imagine what those advertising millions could do for the homeless. <laughs> no, better to just let the no-hopers not survive. But as we said, Big Supremo scuttled them more or less son, a.k.o. Scummo, was ensuring the survival of those who must survive, the airlines, tourist destinations, great retailers like Jerry and other worthy of corporate welfare, handing billions more to these needy causes and making it even more imperative that the government, Scummo and co. slash the non-billions on which doll budges and the poorest of the poor are bludging a whooping it up level of non-corporate welfare allowing them to consolidate their poverty. People whom Jerry would place in the no right to survive category, after all, how can those on non-corporate welfare, as Jerry and airline supremo Alan Joystick et al. would say, afford to buy anything at Jerry's great retail, Bearmoth or Alan's airline? Standing on its own laissez-faire competition policy market forces feet, thanks to the public purse. The airline, which used to be our airline, was privatised by the then socialist government because the private sector was so much more efficient and the public sector couldn't afford the outlays needed to keep up with other free enterprise market forces super efficient airlines. But, must say I got a bit confused when Alan successfully lobbied that rival airlines not be introduced on the lucrative Pacific route because those airlines had the unfair advantage over his privatised efficient model, Alan said, of being publicly owned and state owned. More than a bit confused, I must say. Things must have changed since it was privatised. But thankfully, Alan has convinced the government that market forces require ongoing massive handouts from the public purse so he can prove the great benefits of efficiency far and away above the bloated inefficiency of the public sector. That wasn't really satire, listener. It's what they say. Scuttle then was stunned when questioners suggested his handout to Alan was loaded toward marginal government seats, the latest addition to sports rorts and community grants rorts. Like those two examples, he snapped, it is pure coincidence that all destinations eligible for half-price travel happen to be marginal government seats. Alan is delighted with the initiative and also responds testily to any suggestion the airlines will simply put up the fares, as if Alan and the other airlines would even think of such a tactic. No, Alan said he was thrilled that handing him heaps of government money would allow people in the allotted tourist destinations to retain their jobs, indeed create jobs. That's what it's all about, he said. See, nothing to do with his own profit. Uh, but Alan, you sacked at least 8,000 workers, even though you got millions and millions in JobKeeper. Sadly had to let go. Unless we made that hurtful decision to sadly let go thousands of workers, thousands of our team, how could we have benefited from JobKeeper? Alan's only worry now is that bloody state governments don't do anything silly like put community health ahead of airline profits by closing borders if there are outbreaks of coronavirus. Brisbane must have him and the sundry chambers of profits in a state of panic. One of the norms of politics is simple and explains why politicians earn the non-insubstantial money they're paid 
to ensure the lazy avaricious workers don't get non-insubstantial amounts of money. Simple, each side must oppose whatever the other side says or does. Unless, of course, you happen to be the Socialist Party under Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being easy when you agree with everything the other side says. So when Scuttle then makes a promise of how many millions of true blue Aussie will be vacu- vaccinated in record time, and when they miss the target by a mere few million vaccinations, he picks up the putting a brilliant spin on it award, telling us the vaccination program is not a race. How dare people expect us to vaccinate a few million people in record time just because we said we would vaccinate a few million people in record time. It's not a race. But we wonder if Scuttle then would think it was not a race if the boot was on the other foot, or more correctly, the syringe on the other arm, and a socialist government missed the target by a few million. It would suddenly be a race to the bottom, an attack on public health. And last week we applauded number one train killer Angus Campbeltham's contribution to International Women's Day by warning women trained killer graduates not to go out after dark, not to drink after dark, and to look as ugly as possible. Well, in fairness, poor Angus did say he had been misinterpreted, picking up the, I'm not sure that absolutely clears the matter up award on the way. My intent was to raise awareness and challenge the group to do what they can to mitigate risk. Nice try, Angus, but... It's kind of what you said in the first place. Perhaps we've misinterpreted the misinterpreted clarification. Anyway, good news for Angus is I'm not sure that absolutely clears the matter up award is on its way. Another great and admired of our favourites, Lord Rupert of Wapping, whose Wapping sin usually ignores... Um, the um, International Women's Day, other than next day reporting on women, vi- women, violent working women somewhere across the globe involved in street violence and bashing the proverbial out of the poor, uh, sorry, coppers. But this year, he was full on. Page one, our 30 most influential women in sport. And inside the book, a Lord Rupert Award to all these women doing great things in their rural communities, providing jobs for the ungrateful, and a leading filthy rich of the filthy rich businesswoman saying we must use IWD to get more women into senior positions and onto company boards. A real solution to worker exploitation, other than a boss is a boss is a boss. I'm lucky. A woman who asked not to be named, a worker in a suburban factory where she is paid a pittance, told the week that was. I'm really lucky because my immediate boss is a woman. A boss is a boss is a boss. Lord Rupert, while celebrating the day, seemed to miss the historical source of IWD as International Working Women's Day, but best we delete the working women bit, like they created MORMA to replace Labor Day, to replace the workers' floats and marches with fun, 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 making sure class politics is kept out of the event, well, banned from being mentioned. Finally, Having mentioned the airline that used to be our airline, now the which bank which used to be our bank, and following the which bank being sprung owing 53 mil in underpayments, the finance sector evil union showed just how evil it is by slandering the bank with unrepentant wage thieves. 
This time, just because the bank wants to go straight to its cherished workforce and bypass the union in, in introducing individual agreements, getting rid of RDOs, impediments to good business practice, and therein lies the caring bank employer's sensible motive. The union is a barrier to an attempt to simplify conditions and ensure agreements suit modern work practices. Oh, listener, if only the union would accept modern work practices. Realize that crippling work practices like wages and conditions are a product of another time. The bank has to claw back that 53 mil underpayment some way. After all, it's already in the shareholders' pockets. That is, the shareholders who replaced we pebs when the socialist government also privatised the witch bank so it too could enjoy the benefits of private sector efficiency. And hasn't that worked a treat? Good afternoon. Mr Kevin Healy. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. On Tuesday, March the 16th at 6pm, the Indigenous-led charity Books and Boots will host a special screening of the film In My Blood It Runs at the Thornbury Picture House. All ticket sale proceeds will go to Books and Boots, who transport pre-loved children's books to First Nations kids in remote communities across Australia. For a fun night out and to help close the literacy gap, head to Eventbrite and search Closing the Gap Fundraiser for Books and Boots or go to the website booksandboots.org.au to secure your tickets. Let's do it for the bull rise. Books and Boots is a 3CR supporter. Debbie Stothar is the Secretary-General of the International Federation for Human Rights and coordinator of the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma. She is a pro-democracy human rights defender who has been organising advocacy meetings and campaigns on human rights in Burma and other ASEAN countries for over 30 years. Debbie has worked as a journalist, a community educator and trainer in Malaysia, Thailand and Australia. I spoke once again with Debbie yesterday at her home in Bangkok, Thailand, to ask about the current situation in Burma, Myanmar, and started by saying that it's now six weeks since the coup, and some commentators are talking about the similarities between this and the last coup in 1988, and asked her opinion of that. The 8888 uprising was indeed led by young people, as it is today in this movement. But I think the difference is that at uh, this time, we've seen protests taking place in 95% of the country, which is far more widespread than 8888 uprising. We've also seen that in many smaller towns, these protests have been taking place on a daily basis. And the very interesting difference this time is also we've seen women forming more than half the number of protesters, women taking leadership in this protest movement, and the LGBTQIA community also being very prominent, not just in the main cities like Yangon and Mandalay, but also in smaller towns around the country. In those smaller towns, are the military in that area part of their community or are they military from outside those small communities? 
In many of those communities, the military are from outside the communities. That's very important to note. What we also saw is that for in some of the smaller towns, we've seen that people actually are more vulnerable to bullying and to crimes by the military and other armed groups. So we've seen so people at in these smaller places who've been protesting are usually subjected to disproportionate force where more people might be killed, beaten up or arrested than in, in a larger city. The difference now that we're seeing is that in Yangon, in Rangoon, the main city, the most heavily populated and the most economically vibrant part of the country, the military and police have been targeting young people and protesters in the working class neighborhoods. What we are now seeing is that the military and the police seem to be targeting poorer and and working class areas. For example, in the past two weeks, we've seen very brutal attacks by the military on protesters in North Okalapa, which is the suburb of Yegon, a very poor and working class suburb which hosts the the city's only crematorium. And uh, from the descriptions and the video footage, you can see that even when people uh, were running away, they were shot. Even when people put their hands up in the end, surrendered, they were very severely beaten up. So we had a very high death toll in North Okalapa. Yesterday, what was very shocking is that we also saw in the suburb of Laintaya, which is west of downtown Rangoon across the river, uh, scores of people killed in one of the bloodiest attacks in this movement, a lot of young people killed. And we have to remember that Lantaya was the place that the urban poor in downtown Rangoon were forcibly relocated to in the 90s. These people were hated by the military regime because they were very loyal to Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy. And as part of an urban renewal tourist development project, the um, authorities forcibly relocated them to Lantaya, which was at that time basically a wasteland. And these very poor people had to deal with such difficulties as no public transport, 10 houses having to share one water tap, etc., etc. But more re- in more recent years, this area has become an industrial zone where there are lots of factories. So we have these communities that were forcibly relocated from Yangon in the 90s and then being joined by internal migrants, poor young workers, a lot of women coming from around the country in search of jobs. So Lantaya is particularly concerning because this is basically one of the poorer working-class neighborhoods of Yangon, and we've seen scores of people brutally killed by the military yesterday on the weekend. Are Buddhist monks and the middle class also joining in with the young people? Buddhist monks are part of the protest movement, but they've not uh, been taking a leading role. So have the middle class. The middle class young people, but also and the business community are making huge contributions to the movement by making sure that people have a way to get home, 
by providing shelter, by providing food, making donations so that people can keep going. But um, uh, this is really um, a secular movement. All the different religious groups have put their support there, but they've not actually taken a leading role. The leading role is taken by young men and women. The ethnic states were not involved so much in 1988. Why now? I think the ethnic states understand, ethnic communities understand now that if their country is put back under military regime, they will have the most to lose. They've traditionally been disproportionately affected. They've been targeted with violence. Whenever the military is strong, whenever the military is in charge, the ethnic communities are the first ones to be targeted and be subjected to war crimes and other atrocity crimes. So this time round, young ethnic people also have been quite resistant, and some of these protests have taken place even in places under rebel control, under non-government, not, not under the central government control, because young people and communities in, in those spaces understand that their um, relative freedom and their livelihoods are going to be uh, badly affected if this coup is not overturned. So I think we, we do see a huge amount of solidarity, and we do see in understanding not just uh, amongst the ethnic communities but amongst most of the ethnic armed organizations that have been engaged in a very flawed peace process with the central government and the military. They understand that they are the ones who are going to suffer the most if this coup is not overturned. Looking at the countries who give military cooperation to the military in Myanmar, Burma. Australia is only one of 13 governments who do this. It took 35 days before the Australian government suspended aid to the junta. 35 days, but they only suspended it. They didn't knock it out altogether. What's happening with the other 12 countries who are also supporting the junta? A number of the countries have either suspended or most of them have halted or they have actually cancelled the cooperation. But most of these are uh, basically suspended in the hopes that the military cooperation, the training, would be helping contribute to a better, newer, um, less brutal military. But in reality, uh, Australia, the EU and all these countries should have already halted this cooperation Years ago, when the, when the Rohingya genocide was happening, when military were committing atrocity crimes against the Kachin and the, and the Shan and the Karen, when police were brutally beating up student protesters in recent years. So I think, um, you know, it's too little too late. And I think um, uh, governments need to account for what they did, for failing to understand or, or refusing to listen not just the civil society in the country, but for refusing to listen to civil society in Australia. So many activists in, in Australia, the communities from, uh, migrant communities from Burma, civil society organizations in Australia, were, were basically talking to the Australian government and saying, don't do this, please stop this. And this has been 
a call for several years, not just 35 days. It's really an, embarrass- an embarrassment and, and a shame that Australia refused to listen to reason and instead went on this very harmful project that actually emboldened the military and the police. It's very similar, it seems, to the Australian support for the military in the Philippines where human rights abuses are rampant, yet the Australian government keeps on supporting and increasingly supports the government of Duterte. It is, and it's absolutely disturbing that the agenda of a few men with guns in Australia or some politicians who might feel uh, uh, more masculine because they're engaged in some kind of military cooperation, that their ego and their agenda is more important than the lives of ordinary people in the Philippines and Burma and elsewhere. The, the reality is that this type of military cooperation simply emboldens the perpetrators. And there are many students here in Australia, the estimate is 3,500 from Burma, Myanmar, they're very fearful that the Australian government could send them back because they've been visible in the demonstrations here. I think any government who has people from Burma, Myanmar in their territory need to recognise that these people are all potentially refugees, given what's happening uh, in the country and given that this military regime does not seem to be easing their violence and repression. The Special Advisory Council of Myanmar, which is made up of UN Special Rep- the former UN Special Rapporteur Yang He Lee, and um, Marzuki Darusman and Chris Sadoti, who's an Australian. Marzuki and Chris were both members of the UN fact-finding mission on Myanmar. The three of them have basically issued in the past couple of hours a statement warning that the signs are all there, that the crackdown is actually going to get worse. And so this is actually quite concerning, and no government should be forcing people to go back to Myanmar, Burma, Myanmar at this point, because that would simply be sending them to potential torture and even killing if they return. When you mentioned the armed forces before, you said other armed groups... Who are they? The other armed groups are organizations like the um, Kachin Independence Army and the Karen National Liberation Army and various organizations, uh, armed organizations in Shan State. So we do have quite a few, and as well as armed groups from Kareni State, Mon, and uh, elsewhere. So we do have quite a few, quite a large number of armed organizations that previously signed a national ceasefire agreement, which has routinely been breached and violated by the military, the national military itself. Some of these uh, armed organizations have control over territories and um, understand that if they want to protect their civilians, they need to ensure that they are able to sign a secure peace agreement with a government that actually follows its own rules. Just harking back to 1988 again, a number of students and others managed to escape from Burma at that time into Thailand. That avenue would be closed to the people now? 
at this time, the borders are very tightly controlled because of COVID. And the um, military junta has shut down Yango, all the international airports in the country. And all commercial flights have been canceled till May. The military junta has given itself the month of March to completely crush this movement and secure control over the country, including the civil administration. And this is why we're going to see some very, very harsh violence and escalation of violence in the weeks ahead, targeting unarmed civilian protesters. The military has not got control of the civil administration. In fact, the parallel civilian government, the committee representing the national parliament, which represents over 60% of elected members of parliament, has already been able to organize the state and regional parliaments as well. So in Yangon, in Yangon Regional Parliament, um, they've organized local alternative local government structures in 44 out of the 45 townships, which is why Yangon is now being targeted for even worse violence. The UN permanent representative for Myanmar has also turned his back on the junta and stood on the side of the CRPH civilian government, as has thousands, tens of thousands of civil servants, including senior officials to the rank of director general. And even hundreds of police have actually abandoned their posts and either fled to India or gone into hiding because they refuse to follow orders to kill civilians. This violence is actually a sign of desperation. The military junta realizes that they don't have control of the streets and they don't have control of the administration. And the way they're going about it is also ensuring that they don't have control of the economy. How widespread are labor strikes? The labor strikes are extremely extremely organized and they are very widespread and we can already see that Lantaya, uh, this very poor and working class neighborhood in the west of Yangon where there are many, many factories, was very active on the strikes. So we do see that the workers who have been organizing, particularly the poorer workers, have been more severely targeted by the regime. Does the military have the power to shut down social media? Yes. The junta has been imposing internet blackouts from 1 to 9 a.m. every night, mainly because this is the time that they go from house to house and arrest people, grab people out of their homes. They had these internet shutdowns to prevent the population from coordinating with each other and from sending information out of the country. But this has also severely interfered with businesses and banking. And this is also one of the reasons that the banking system is about to collapse. The military also arrested three deputy governors of the Central Bank of Myanmar, and that didn't help either because most of the workers of the Central Bank of Myanmar then joined the civil disobedience movement. But going back to social media, the military has imposed daily blackouts from 1 to 9 a.m. They tried to ban 
Facebook, they're interfering, they're giving orders to telecommunications companies to restrict websites, and this adds to the more than 30 websites that they banned already before the coup took place. But local people are trying to get onto VPNs and finding alternative ways to get around these bans. For example, when the military banned Facebook, then a lot of people started using Twitter instead. And so now we're seeing activists being very active on both Facebook and Twitter because they found workarounds, ways of working around the military bans. Debbie, you're in Bangkok, your organisation. What can be done from outside the country? Look, Australia really needs to get its act together. The Morrison government needs to be much more active on international platforms. For example, to support a global arms embargo against the military of Burma, firstly. Secondly, any country that has Burmese nationals in their territory should be offering them temporary asylum until the situation clears up. Thirdly, no company, no Western company, no Australian company should be even paying a single bit of dividend, tax fees, whatever, no payments to the junta. It is illegal. It's illegal even under its own constitution. This is basically a criminal organization and no company, no international company should have anything to do with this junta. This junta has paid $2 million to a lobbyist in order to overturn sanctions and to stop international pressure from proceeding. They very well are concerned about sanctions. They are very well concerned about international acceptance. They're promising this lobbyist an, a generous bonus if he is effective. And it's telling us very clearly that despite the hard poker face this junta is putting on in the international community, it is deeply concerned about sanctions and about being isolated. And for that reason, governments around the world need to ensure that the economic pressure is on. Military companies should not profit from this violence, and this illegal junta should not receive a single cent from the international community. Are you aware of the extent of Australian business in Myanmar? Australian companies have had a long presence in the country, even under the times of the military regime. Uh, Organisations such as Aceto Union Aid Abroad and other activists have been campaigning to get these companies to suspend their operations, and some indeed have. But I think Australia needs to have a more robust policy framework to make sure that Australian companies do not contribute directly or indirectly to serious human rights violations, whether it's Burma, Philippines, or any other part of the world. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you. Activist and human rights campaigner Debbie Stoffard. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, 
relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Hello, this is Virginia from the 3CR Garden Show. We are back live to the airwaves every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. There are some changes. Sadly, Pam has retired at the Garden Show and will be sorely missed. But Stephen and I are excited to be hosting the show and we have many old favourites and some new voices. So tune in for the usual fabulous gardening advice. 855 on the AM dial. 3CR Digital or 3cr.org.au Every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15 COVID permitting Look forward to your company Cheers As I said on the program last week on the 11th of March 2011 the world changed for many millions of people both in Japan and worldwide but it was the people of Japan we not only suffered the impacts of the disaster, but largely we are the cost. The tsunami caused by an earthquake and subsequent nuclear disaster was the world's most complex. Last week we heard the first part of an interview with Dr Tillman Ruff, Australian Infectious Diseases and Public Health Physician. Tillman is Associate Professor in the Nossel Institute for Global Health in the School of Population and Global Health at Melbourne University. He's also past president of MAPW and founding international and Australian chair of ICANN. Now to part two of the interview with Tillman. And one of the worst aspects of the health management for me that I that just absolutely sticks in my craw is that a couple of weeks after the disaster, the Japanese government quite arbitrarily with no professional or scientific or medical body was calling for this. Um, they decided to make basically make the disaster easy to manage, reduce the, the relocation and costs. They would increase the maximum permissible radiation level from the normal standard of one millisievert per year to 20 millisieverts per year, so 20 times higher. The same level as normally applies to healthy monitored adult nuclear industry workers. And this is children, pregnant women, everybody in the population, it's okay for you to get 20 millisieverts. No other country on earth has ever accepted such a high level going on for a decade uh, after a disaster with no time frame for its reduction. And that 20 millisieverts level has become the basis for the government's push to kind of present the Fukushima disaster as done and dusted, sorted, Japan's open for business again by saying that areas are now safe for people to return to and withdrawing uh, the housing and, and, and living support and compensation payments that displaced people uh, were receiving. They're basically you know, either forcing people back to unsafe environments or, or making it very difficult for them to make other choices. But the reality is that you know, in Itate, for example, that, that town I mentioned, less than 10% of the people have gone back. You know, they, they're not stupid. They, 
and and there's often very tragic sort of social consequences of that because families get split up you know old people who've always lived in a multi-generational household are now back by themselves their kids and their grandkids won't come breadwinners staying for Krishna to try and you know not lose the family assets or keep a job you know while usually the the, the partner and the children are you know, have gone somewhere else if they've got relatives or are able to move somewhere else in Japan. So there's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of alcohol and substance abuse, several thousand suicides, 3,000 plus suicides recognised by the government as being related to the nuclear disaster. There are all sorts of other adverse social consequences, discrimination and bullying um, of kids from Fukushima in schools in other parts of Japan, much as we saw with the Hibakusha sort of being ostracised and discriminated against after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's really a sad situation and, and there have been extensive criticisms from UN special rapporteurs, from many other governments of Japan in the Human Rights Council of the United Nations being really clear about the recommendations to basically respect people's dignity and rights and pay adequate compensation and, and don't blame the victim and you know, be transparent, involve people in, in the planning and reduce this 20 millisievert level back to one as quickly as possible, um, which should have already been done. And, and basically none of that has happened. And Japan is now even refusing further visits of UN special rapporteurs. And, and that's when you know that things are really, you know, they're not interested if they, don't, if they won't even engage uh, and expose themselves to, you know, to international support and examination. I think it's really important that as the Olympics come up, uh, you know, we don't let the Fukushima issues, the myth presented that this is done and dusted and it's all over and things are back to normal, um, and really make sure that the needs and rights um, for both environmental protection but also people's um, well-being and, and health needs are, are addressed. What was the situation in those early times with food and water? Because they'd both be contaminated. Did the government bring in fresh food and water or were the people expected to eat what was there? This is one thing that in general has not been managed too badly. There were immediate uh, restrictions that were put in place on, on produce from Fukushima. But of course, you know, what you can sell and what goes to market is a very different thing from what people eat. And especially when times are tough, and if people have been advised to shelter, you know, they're going to eat what's what's available. You know, there's certainly old people that are eating stuff that they shouldn't be eating. There are still quite high levels of of radioactivity in some wild foods, especially mushrooms and, and meat like boar, pigs. Um, you know, just uh, about a week ago, there was a report of a, of a fish caught off the coast of Fukushima, which had five times the level of permitted level of caesium in it. And... The radioactivity in the environment is not a fixed thing. It moves around the main uh, radioisotope, the main substance that, that's responsible for, the, for most of the radiation that's still there, uh, is cesium. It's a mix of cesium. Thankfully, it's a mix that decays a bit quicker than, the, than what's in Chernobyl. But it moves around and it concentrates in living things, in plants and animals. So a fish in a lake in Fukushima might have seven, 8,000 times as high levels of cesium in it as the water that it's swimming in. And there's been a lot of effort put into you know, so-called decontamination, which is basically just scraping up 
surfaces like gravel and soil from around houses, from streets, from parks and public places, especially where kids are, from schools, scraping off the top sort of 10 centimetres of soil because that's where the fair bit of the cesium is initially, and then bundling this up into into big plastic bags that are supposed to last about 10 years. Uh, the cesium will last a lot longer. And then build this up in massive piles, millions and millions of tonnes of it all over the prefecture. Um, basically just these huge piles of, of dirt. And that has been a huge industry, you know, money for jam for the construction industry. It's put some workers at, you know, poorly regulated risk. It hasn't worked all that well. And in part that's because Fukushima is very mountainous. About 70% of it is sort of still forested mountains with sort of agriculture in the valleys in between. And even if you remove the, the the soil from around a house in the valley, say, you know, the next time there's a typhoon or a serious amount of rain, you know, it washes down again from the forest and recontaminates a lot of those areas. And there's also now some pretty clear evidence that the cesium builds up in pretty high, remarkably high concentrations um, in the sands along beaches and and rivers and deltas uh, and persists for quite long periods of time. So it moves around and is concentrated in the environment. So it's certainly an ongoing issue. There is a pretty good program of monitoring of, of local foodstuffs. And in fact, because there's been so much misinformation and so much distrust of government now, people have gone to extraordinary and impressive lengths to set up their own systems of measuring their own produce. But you can imagine the imposition that, you know, everything that gets locally grown before it's sold uh, basically has to be tested for radioactivity. I mean, it's a huge cost and workload. Some of those foods are now sort of coming down. Some are still problematic. From an export point of view, there are 30, upwards of 30 countries that won't accept produce from Fukushima. And there's a huge concern in the fishing industry now that the Japanese government plans to release large amounts of contaminated water that's building up on the site from all of the contaminated water that they're having to pump out of the damaged reactors to keep them cool, uh, to pour in and to then remove. And the government plans to release that progressively into the ocean and there's um, you know, there's great concern that ocean leakage is already a, a, a continuing problem, that that will basically kill uh, the fishery pretty much along much of um, eastern Honshu, the main island. What about the many thousands of workers who have been working in that plant or around that plant for the last 10 years? What protection have they got? Yeah, this is a bit of a dark underbelly of the nuclear industry, not just in Japan, but in other places too, that the workers by and large have not really had adequate health and safety provisions and, and um, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. What happens in Japan, and it's similar in, in a number of other countries, is that a nuclear uh, operating company like TEPCO, which runs the Fukushima plants, has a certain number of, of staff, but they only make up about 10 or at most 15% of the total workforce and especially the clean-up workforce, which is about, in the Fukushima plant, it's still around seven, seven, 8,000 people a day are working and will have to work for decades and decades hence just to, you know, to try and keep this thing from blowing up and, and leaking further into the environment. It's a massive undertaking 
10 or 15% of those people are TEPCO employees, and they at least have some sort of rights as employees of the company and get some reasonable training and support and you know, protective equipment and, and monitoring. But 85 or 90% of those workers are not TEPCO employees. They are subcontractors, and they go through multiple you know, subcontractors of some contractors of subcontractors. So some of it goes down to seven, eight, even nine levels of subcontracting. And a lot of those people at the bottom, you know, are homeless people, are, are day labourers, are people with, with mental illness, are migrants and, 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 and other socially disadvantaged minorities, people who don't have adequate training, don't have adequate protection, don't have adequate monitoring and move from job to job. And often, you know, there's pressure to, to minimise their measured radiation exposure if it's measured at all so that they don't run out of ability to work in, in Fukushima or some other nuclear plant. And if you look at the, the what's public about the radiation exposure measurements, then those day labourers, those contractors, have around two, three, four times the radiation exposure as the TEPCO workers. And a lot of that's probably not monitored or not monitored very well. I mean, there's been some, you know, well-publicised cases where companies are actually provided instructions as to how workers should put a little lead shield over their radiation dosimeter so that it wouldn't read any radioactivity, you know, or people leave it in the truck or give it to someone else or do various things to it to try and avoid, you know, getting too much radiation exposure, which would impede their ability to work. So, you know, this is dirty, difficult, dangerous work. A lot of the site is still very intensely radioactive, still not places where people can go. Even inside the plants where, the you know, the critical part of seeing where the spent fuel is and trying to figure out how to get it out, which is still the current plan, has been impossible even with robots, specially designed robots, because the radiation levels are so high that even the robots pack up malfunction within a matter of hours. So this is a really difficult, dangerous environment to work in, but we're going to need people who know what they're doing to be doing this for many decades hence in their thousands. And so there is a real continuing danger that this will be poor migrant, inadequately protected and trained people who, who are taken advantage of. And, and there's also been quite consistent reports of Yakuza, the sort of Japanese mafia involvement in uh, this subcontracting of, of nuclear workers. So it's a pretty dark underbelly of, of, of this pretty dark industry. When were you last there, Tillman, and what was it like for you? You know, I've really been making an effort to try and go there whenever I, I'm in Japan or I can, um, to, just to support people and to see what's what's going on. So the first time I went there was in August of 2011, so five months after the disaster. The last time I was there now because of COVID was uh, towards the end of 2019. Difference as well, a lot more people know a lot more about radioactivity and have had to learn. There have been some extraordinary citizen initiatives in terms of monitoring radiation, in terms of getting together and testing their own produce because people have felt that the government has abandoned them and they've had to basically look after themselves. So there's some really impressive efforts, really impressive systems like SafeCast, which is a system where you basically can buy a little pretty cheap radiation meter. It's hooked up to 
GPS and mobile phone technology and basically wherever you go it, it will add your radiation readings to a massive database. There's enormous detail now and citizens have done extensive monitoring of soil radioactivity all over Japan in a way that the government hasn't. So there's been some really good sort of citizen science and citizens taking control of their own lives trying to understand the risks better. Much of the best agricultural land in Fukushima is now covered in these massive piles of you know, huge plastic bags that are all supposed to be temporary, but nobody believes that or nobody knows where they might go afterwards. A couple of the farmers I've sort of been in long-term contact with, you know, it's really sad for them, um, particularly uh, some Australians might remember Kenichi and, and Hanako Hasegawa, um, two remarkable dairy farmers who toured Australia some years ago, you know, multi-generational, live on the farm that they were born on, the, you know, it's been in the family for centuries, you know, really happy household with kids and grandkids and grandparents, um, dairy farmers. You know, now Kenichi and Hanako have gone back, uh, went back in early 20, 2019. But, you know, it's really sad. None of their kids will go back, none of their grandkids will go back. Um, you know, Kenichi's growing some, some buckwheat, some silver, but, you know, it's really just to himself busy and, not that let the land, you know, slide into disuse completely. Um, they're under no illusions that there's no future in Fukushima there. You know, and this make what used to be regarded as, as one of the most beautiful villages and rural areas in Japan. The last time I was there, I met a local councillor who had been involved in setting up a support group for families for uh, of children with thyroid cancer. That's good work, but very distressing that that has to happen now. One positive thing is that you see a lot more solar panels. There's been really extensive, quite large arrays of solar installations in Fukushima. I think quite a strong determination that the future in that Fukushima should be a renewable energy leader in Japan, which is, I think, a really positive thing. But in a lot of the, the most contaminated areas, you know, the government's pouring in lots of money. The government's trying to encourage people back, but nobody wants to go back. In Itate, less than 10% of people have gone back. And, but, you know, yet they've built these massive, expensive new sports facilities to try and, and lure some of the national Olympic teams to be based in Fukushima in their preparations for, for the Olympics. Obviously, that, that didn't happen last year. So there's, there's this sort of stark contrast between an environment where a lot of people are doing it pretty tough uh, have lost ancestral lands, have lost homes, have lost jobs, families split up, yet the government's found the money to invest in these sort of large flagship projects to try and project things as as on track uh, in Fukushima uh, in a way that they're not really resources that they're not putting into to properly supporting the people there. You know, it's a, it's a sort of testimony to people's resilience, but it's also a sad place and you really appreciate you know, that this is not like other accidents or disasters that kind of can blow over and, you know, people can rebuild after an earthquake. It's this horrible, insidious, lingering radiation that will be there for centuries. Just read one paragraph from an article. A big part of the post-Fukushima spin is that lessons were learnt from the nuclear disaster and improvements made. But the real lesson from this saga is that the nuclear industry in Japan at least, has learnt nothing from its catastrophic mistakes and an accident will surely happen again.
probably true. You know, if the chair of the National Independent Investigation Commission into the nuclear disaster says that the lessons haven't been learned and almost nothing has changed, you know, we better believe him. I've certainly seen that, um, you know, there are nine of the 54 nuclear reactors that that were operating uh, have been restarted. There are still fairly aggressive efforts of Japanese companies to, to sell reactors offshore. I think it's a much more difficult landscape for nuclear, for the nuclear industry uh, in Japan, but it's, you know, it, it, it's fought back. It's very powerfully uh, connected. It has manipulated uh, this disaster so that basically taxpayers and the government is paying for the, you know, the massive, extraordinarily massive cost of this disaster. Yeah, it's, it's I think, brought out some of the, if you like, some of the most feudal and sort of authoritarian and secretive aspects of of Japanese uh, society and, and um, that really good governance is, you know, is a long way off in a, in a number of, of respects when there are such powerful vested interests that are that are lined up together. There has to be hope, though, doesn't there, Tillman? Absolutely, and I think one of the important so there are lots of sources of hope for me. One is the you know to see solar panels really rolled out at scale across Fukushima to see how how people have um, grabbed this issue and learnt about this and managed, learnt to manage the risks and understand them better themselves. I think the fact that Japan was able to manage really quite well with going absolutely cold turkey on shutting down all of its nuclear power plants almost overnight. And that didn't result in major disruptions and industry collapse. Some belt tightening, yes, there was a temporary increase in fossil fuel imports, but it absolutely demonstrated beyond any shadow of doubt that Japan could manage just fine without its nuclear power reactors. And if they got serious about renewables and efficiency, they could do so, you know, very easily. And that was the second part of an interview with Dr. Tillman Ruff. 3CR Kofiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot org dot A-U, a 3CR supporter. CCR's Binary Bartstein broadcast is airing seven hours of trans and gender diverse radio in the lead up to the 2021 Trans Day of Visibility and as part of Bi Health Awareness Month. Bringing the noise to the Western gender binary. Tune in on Sunday, 21st of March, between 12 noon and 7 pm, to hear trans and gender diverse voices 
busting binaries, including in areas of art, culture, politics, well-being and resilience. Towards the Transgender Day of Audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash binary busting. The 3CR Binary Busting Broadcast Project is financially supported by a Pride Events grant from the Victorian Government. Travelling back to the South Pacific again today with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And Nick, we talked about COVID-19 over previous programs, which countries have done well and why, and why others are not doing so well. But it's March now and vaccines are all the topic for discussion. Who's likely to get them, why, and what about the others who might not yet be part of the proposed rollout? This decision on the vaccine opens up a can of worms, doesn't it? The distribution of vaccines is going to be a a significant challenge because there's a lot of players involved uh, across the Pacific region and also a lot of doubts about the timelines to roll out uh, vaccination to an area that's enormous. There are a lot of logistic challenges to get uh, vaccines into rural areas and outlying islands in the Pacific Islands, particularly with a drug like the Pfizer drug, which requires uh, extreme cold to to store the the vaccine. There's uh, indeed a growing competition between Australia, the United States and France with other players, including China and India, which also have uh, developed vaccines that uh, may be useful in combating uh, the spread of COVID-19. So it's a real geopolitical mishmash, isn't it? Last week we've seen uh, a meeting of the so-called Quad, which is uh, Australia, Japan, India and um, the United States. For the first time, the presidents and prime ministers of those countries have come together in a Quad meeting. Previously, it had been uh, ministers rather than uh, leaders coming together. And it's a significant attempt to forge an alliance that can contribute to the containment of China in the the region. They don't talk about the containment of China, but that's what's really driving this policy, uh, led particularly by the United States. And one of the, the key agenda items at the Quad meeting is the question of vaccine distribution in the region. Um, last year, as we talked about previously on the program, there was a lot of competition at the beginning of the pandemic for distribution of um, medical supplies, what's called PPE, personal protective equipment, and so on. And um, last year, the Pacific set up what they called the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway, which was a way that materials uh, could be distributed across the region without causing problems for a lot of the smaller island states that haven't had any COVID cases whatsoever. For example, in Tuvalu, a small country of about 14,000 people, their flights come through Fiji and uh, through Nandi Airport in Fiji. And so to get to Tuvalu, you have to pass through another country. So there's all sorts of quarantine and uh, COVID restrictions on transport and movement of people and so on that complicates life for the people of Tuvalu. So now that we're moving beyond you know, medical supplies and PPE to the distribution of vaccines and the equipment to you know, get the vaccines into people's arms, the same problems apply. And so you're seeing a level of competition between different players to win the political plaudits for assisting the Pacific region. 
But understandably, people don't particularly care about that on the ground. They want to ensure that uh, those at risk um, can have access to the, uh, the vaccines that are a crucial part of responding to the pandemic. Can we just go back to what the Australian government promised to the Pacific? Yeah, in October last year, Australia announced a, a program uh, for both the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So they talked about um, a regional COVID-19 access and health security initiative, grand title. And so the, basically they're talking about rolling out over three years a program worth 500 million Australian dollars to support governments in the Pacific and Southeast Asia to plan for, you know, vaccine systems to access the, and to roll out um, the distribution of the drugs. As I say, often in quite difficult logistic circumstances, getting drugs out to outer islands, to small rural communities, it's a big challenge. A lot of that money, uh, of the $500 million bucket of money, goes to Papua New Guinea. Um, so there's about $144 million pledged for COVID-19 vaccination in the Pacific and another 50-odd million to Pacific Island countries, so, so beyond Papua New Guinea to other small Pacific Island nations. The Australian government's also pledged money, apart from this bilateral money that will go directly to governments, they're committed about $80 million to a scheme called COVAX, the COVAX facility, which is a global mechanism set up through a number of uh, vaccination initiatives uh, at the global level to provide vaccines to high-risk groups in developing countries because a number of Pacific Island countries are least developed countries or small island developing states. They're eligible to get vaccines through this COVAX facility and a number of countries, particularly the European Union, uh, but also Australia, have put money into this multilateral facility, which is a way that poorer country, developing countries, can access drugs. Because if you've noticed in the newspapers recently, particularly in Europe, you see countries, uh, developed rich countries, starting to hoard drugs. So Italy recently barred the uh, export of a whole lot of Pfizer drugs that were due to come to Australia. Australia had, you know, ordered them, uh, contracted to get them, but because they've got a, a major crisis in many European countries, Italy and other EU countries, uh, including France, are starting to say, well, hang on, we need to deal with our crisis first before we distribute drugs to Australia. If they're saying that to Australia, they're certainly not going to leap ahead to support smaller countries with a full rollout. You know, this is a real question on a global scale. Once again, a question of global justice. Will there be the equitable distribution of safe and effective vaccines across the region in a timely manner at a time that there are production bottlenecks in Europe and at a time that a lengthy rollout of vaccines taking years rather than months will exacerbate the economic impacts because of the loss of travel and tourism and all the things we face in Australia are also faced by our Pacific neighbours. Is it a fact that PNG is a high-risk country with a, a, a large number of cases of COVID-19? And I could imagine the logistics of vaccinating the people of PNG with the mountainous terrain. Yes, it's a major challenge. And indeed, just in recent weeks, it's getting worse. You know, over the last year, Papua New Guinea has managed the COVID crisis remarkably well. It's a country of 8 million or more people. Um, as you say, the logistics of operating in uh, PNG are, are really significant. 
for example, to get from the capital, Port Moresby, to many places in the country, you have to fly. There are no roads across the Owen Stanley Ranges um, into, into the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And so flying material around is expensive. Getting health teams out to the, the rural and regional areas of PNG is an enormous challenge. And that's where, as I say, Australia has pledged funds for this program over the next three years. But there's a, a surge of cases just recently in Papua New Guinea, and people are saying that it can't be dragged out, this process. And this whole question of the timelines was at the heart of the discussion at a recent meeting of the um, Pacific Island leaders. Uh, last year, the annual meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum, where the leaders come together face-to-face, was uh, postponed and cancelled. Uh, so the meeting in Vanuatu, due in August 2020, just didn't go ahead because of the COVID problems at that time and Australia being in lockdown and things. So this year, in February, just last month, there was a, uh, a virtual meeting online where the presidents and prime ministers of the Pacific Islands Forum came together and one of the core issues was about the COVID recovery, both the economic impacts, which are pretty significant across the region, but also about the vaccination question. You know, Scott Morrison pledged at that meeting that Australia, through both the COVAX facility, the global multilateral facility, and through direct support to each government, would assist with the rollout of vaccines in the Pacific. There are two questions though about that. Firstly, the timing, and secondly, the role of other players. And it's interesting to note that the final communique from that retreat welcomed support directly from Australia and New Zealand to secure vaccines for all people across the Pacific. But it also noted that the multilateral and bilateral partnerships are working to ensure 100% coverage. So while Pacific leaders have welcomed support from Australia and New Zealand, they're also suggesting that Australia and New Zealand's pledge is not enough for everyone in the Pacific. And so they're looking to multilateral players like the COVAX mechanism or to bilateral partnerships with other countries. And that's where we're talking about countries like China and India and others who can assure that 100% of people get vaccinated in a timely fashion. And indeed, I, I attended a press conference with the um, forum chair, uh, Kasea Natano, who's the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, and he confirmed that some countries in the Pacific will receive vaccines from China, Taiwan and other partners. And which countries are they? Well, already France, for example, is providing some vaccines to its Pacific dependencies. French Polynesia, for example, has had a terrible, terrible tragedy with COVID, although they managed the early cases that surged back in February, March, April last year. They got things under control. But when France reopened borders in April, uh, sorry, in July 2020, there was a massive surge of cases in French Polynesia, which is still a colony of France. And since uh, July last year, French Polynesia has had 18,000 cases of COVID, 141 deaths. That's only in a country of 280,000 people. So that's an enormous impact. You know, Fiji, as an independent country, has had one case for every 16,000 people. French Polynesia has had one case for every 16 people. So it's very high as a per capita impact on the people of French Polynesia. So France has been under pressure to start vaccinating people in its Pacific territories, New Caledonia, Wallace and Futuna, French Polynesia, and all three have cases at the moment of, of COVID. 
and so um, there's, a, there's pressure on the French government to uh, support the rollout. Similarly, the United States is rolling out support in its Pacific territories, like Guam and American Samoa, and in what they call the freely associated states. These are countries that have got a compact of free association and agreement with the United States, so the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and Palau. So France and the US are already looking after their dependencies in the Pacific. But uh, other countries aren't waiting for Australia. So, for example, China has pledged support to developing country partners like Fiji. And Fiji, just uh, two weeks ago, received the first of its uh, vaccinations through the COVAX facility, this global mechanism. So Fiji is due over... Uh, the next year to get 108,000 doses from the COVAX mechanism. And they got the first 12,000 the other day. It's a small number, but it's a sign that things are starting to move. So Fiji's not waiting for Australia. And I think this is one of the, um, the significant issues about the timelines. The Australian government has pledged support, but many Pacific countries are watching the news and seeing the sort of bottlenecks and delays. So, for example, as I said, Italy has now just uh, put some export restrictions on drugs being manufactured in Europe to come to Australia. Similarly, Brendan Murphy, the Secretary of our Health Department, Federal Health Department, was just before Senate estimates, and he said that the Prime Minister's commitment that everyone in Australia would be vaccinated by the end of October, uh, maybe not the end of October, um, so the timelines are already slipping for Australia's rollout. Now appears that people will be vaccinated, the people eligible for the, the vaccine will get their first dose by October, but getting the second and subsequent doses may roll out until late 2021, early 2022. So already, even though we're just beginning vaccination, the timelines are being drawn out and Prime Minister Morrison's pledges are shown to be not correct, can we put it politely? And so that's obviously a concern in Australia. And it's similarly a concern amongst our Pacific neighbours. There's a lot of discussion at the Special Leaders Retreat about the finance, uh, who's going to pay for the vaccines, who's going to pay for the equipment and infrastructure needed to get the vaccines available right through the Pacific. So setting up cold chains for refrigeration of the drugs, uh, making sure that everyone's got the masks and equipment and needles and equipment necessary to vaccinate millions of people across the region, particularly in Papua New Guinea. And so, you know, Scott Morrison's assured Pacific leaders about the production of the AstraZeneca drug at the CSL laboratories in, in, in Melbourne. When I spoke to Dame Meg Taylor, the Forum Secretary General, she said that that pledge that, um, you know, production of millions of doses in Australia would assist the Pacific and she told me um, that was well received by Pacific leaders to know that the vaccines are not far away. And she said, and I quote, there was a commitment that all the Pacific in time will get the vaccination. But how all this rolls out will depend on supplies. And so she confirmed that there's no fixed timeline for the rollout of vaccines across the region. So Australia has announced finance and a commitment to, to roll out vaccines across the region. But the timeline is of crucial importance, given that the, the tourism collapse has hit the Pacific hard, given that there's tough economic times across the Pacific, as there is 
for working people, for the poorest members of every community across the world. And looking at the spread of mutations in the Northern Hemisphere, people are anxious that if it's going to be a long time, that's a significant problem. Also, Nick, apart from the travel restrictions, getting enough equipment and supplies, what about a significant number of health professionals to actually give the vaccines? This is a big challenge in a country like Papua New Guinea. And look, it's hard to generalise because some Pacific countries have got very good public health systems, uh, very effective. Fiji, for example, has a pretty good public health system. Other countries have you know, significant stresses and, and challenges. PNG, you know, has sort of 500 doctors for a country with 8, 8 million people. Um, so there's a desperate need for support in Papua New Guinea because it's such a big country and such a difficult country to operate in in terms of logistics and supply of materials to rural health centres and so on. Uh, already, PNG face significant problems with, you know, the health burden that comes from other illnesses, everything from malaria to uh, infectious diseases uh, to the growing what they call non-communicable diseases like diabetes and obesity, which are a big problem across the Pacific. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, people who are obese or, or with diabetes can have complications from COVID. The Pacific's already got a big public health burden. Times people have left the Pacific, uh, health workers with good skills have left the Pacific for greener pastures. Uh, I used to live in Fiji, in, in, and when I was in Fiji in 2000, during the coup, the George Spate coup in 2000, there was a loss of a lot of health professionals who were sick of all the troubles in Fiji, and many doctors and nurses, skilled medical personnel, migrated to Australia and New Zealand and Canada that year. Um, there's about 40 doctors, I think, at rough statistics, who left Fiji at that time. So to lose, imagine if Victoria lost 40 doctors out of a public health system to go elsewhere. That obviously impacts the poorer people, you know, who can't afford to pay for private health support. So there are real disparities between the wealthy in the community who are doing quite well through the pandemic and grassroots people who've lost their jobs, um, who've seen industries like tourism decimated. The same sort of problems that face Australia about closed borders, about impacts on key sectors like education and, and uh, tourism and so on play out across the Pacific Islands country. But these are developing countries and often don't have the resources to respond in the way that we do. Speaking to people in various countries in the Pacific, is there any concern about the rush to bring these vaccines into production, the safety? There's a bit of concern. It, it, look, it's once again hard to generalise from place to place. You know, a lot of countries have uh, the same sort of debates on Facebook that we do. There are some religious groups that have raised concerns about vaccination, uh, but the majority of people, you know, uh, as in Australia, recognise that vaccination is important. One of the questions, though, is about informing people what's required. But, see, some countries have had recent experience where, you know, anti-vax nonsense has, um, has caused problems. Uh, so, for example, Samoa had a big epidemic of measles in 2019, uh, which caused a, a number of deaths, particularly among young children who hadn't been vaccinated for measles. And so they had a big public health education campaign to talk about, yeah, sure, the, the issues about vaccination, but also the importance of uh, vaccination for kids in particular. Um, the same sort of public education campaigns are underway. And I think you have to acknowledge that most people are aware of the hazards of COVID. 
they've seen what's gone wrong in countries like French Polynesia, I think it's really worth stressing that people in the Pacific recognise the spread of infectious diseases in small populations as a major, major problem right at the beginning. So in February and March 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, you saw countries moving very quickly to ban cruise ships. I mean, we had the whole Ruby Princess saga and everyone in the Pacific realised what a danger it was to let cruise ships come in. So you saw countries like Vanuatu and others, which earned a lot from cruise ship visits, just banning the visits straight. Some countries shut their borders before Australia. You know, the Marshall Islands, right at the beginning in, in March um, last year, just shut the borders to all flights, in and out. And that's a real burden for, you know, tourism, for people bringing in supplies, for all sorts of business people and so on. But... Um, Many Pacific countries have remained COVID-free completely or have had three or four cases. You know, Samoa, I think, has had three cases with returning students and, and Samoan workers and so on. But they've managed to stop the, the spread of the virus, had no community transmission. And so a number of Pacific countries, by their border closures, have, have managed this crisis very well. There are economic impacts, which people are working on, obviously, and now, um, as I say, with the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway, people worked very well to, to collaborate in terms of getting the initial supplies, PPE and so on around. Now they face the same challenge of getting vaccines around. But some countries that have an alliance with, with China, I think will probably move to take some of the Chinese drugs if the AstraZeneca supplies in Australia roll out slower than Scott Morrison has pledged. Just looking at two topics that we spoke about last time, Nick, one was the, the collapse of the government in New Caledonia and the other was troubles with the Pacific Islands Forum. Have both those issues been resolved? No, <laughs> they're both still on the table. Things have moved on to some quiet behind-closed-doors diplomacy in both cases. In uh, February, the beginning of February, the government of... Uh, uh, New Caledonia, which is a multi-party government involving both supporters and opponents of independence. All five ministers who support independence uh, uh, resigned at one time, essentially a no confidence in the president, Thierry Sonta, uh, who's the leader of the anti-independence party, Rassemblement. The Congress met a couple of weeks later in a very significant move, chose a new 11-member government, but this time six pro-independence members, not five, were elected. So for the first time in a long time, the independence movement has a majority in the government. Those six uh, people are now debating uh, who they'll put up as their candidate for the president of the government. Um, there are currently two contenders, one from the, each of the main political parties that support independence. Uh, that's where the closed-door negotiations are currently underway. They haven't been able to agree on who should be president. Um, there's a bit of a timeline that has to be done, I think, in the next couple of weeks because the French can take over the budget uh, with the government in caretaker mode unless they decide uh, pretty soon. So I think in the next week or so this will be resolved and New Caledonia will have a government with a majority of people supporting independence, six out of the 11 members, and for the first time in nearly 40 years will have a leader, a Kanak leader, who supports independence. That's a really major change, and so um, that will play out. The other dispute you mentioned was within the Pacific Islands Forum. One of the, the other key agenda item of the special leaders retreat I mentioned earlier on the 3rd of February was the appointment of a new Secretary General 
before the Forum Secretariat, which is based in Suva, the capital of Fiji. The current Secretary-General, Dame Meg Taylor, is finishing her second term of office. She's done two terms and, and under the rules, has to end her time as Secretary-General. Uh, the Micronesian countries that put up a joint candidate didn't get their guy up, um, Ambassador Gerald Zakios and uh, Australia, New Zealand and the Polynesian countries supported uh, Henry Puna, the former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands. Puna is um, now taking up his position in April, and so there's a, a, an ongoing debate within the forum. The Micronesian countries have announced that they're stepping out of the forum at the moment, uh, although that'll take a year for them to fully withdraw from the forum. Once again, a lot of discussion behind the scenes about how to resolve these tensions um, over leadership within the forum. So for the islands, you know, who are trying to deal with the COVID pandemic, with the economic impact of uh, border closures and the loss of tourism, with uh, the ongoing ravages of climate change. Poor old New Caledonia just got hit by Cyclone Niran, caused extensive damage across the country, um, just as Fiji's had two Category 5 cyclones in the last year. The climate challenge is, is the biggest challenge, even in the middle of the pandemic. So all this is happening, and it's putting stresses and strains on regional unity, and that's where the politics of the vaccine roll out, the geopolitical contest between the United States and China, with Korea, Japan, Australia, India, France lining up with the Americans to constrain Chinese influence in the islands. For ordinary people who just want their health protected, it's a very challenging time. Our monthly report from the Pacific with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. As we've heard on the program in the past two weeks, March 2011, was the month of the Fukushima disaster, the earthquake, nuclear accident and tsunami. March was also the month in 2011 for the beginning of the long war against Syria and it's been and remains extremely difficult to find an unbiased reporting and analysis of the past 10 years. This includes most of the Western media plus what is called the Gulf Monarchy Media Al Jazeera and Al Arabia, all of which support a propaganda war against Syria, that is, it's a civil war, a revolution, as examples. Dr Tim Anderson has been one of the lone voices in Australia, not influenced by these sources, seeking information from alternative sources and visiting Syria a number of times. 
I asked him first to talk about the recent history of Syria, its place in the Middle East in the decades leading up to the beginning of the 21st century. So Syria was one of the relatively successful fragments of what the French and the British left behind. After they took over the Ottoman Empire, they tried to divide up the rest of that Arab world as much as they could. You know, they they wanted to create four fragments in Syria, for example, but the Syrian nationalists resisted that and held together as a pluralist nation. And that's what Syria, in many respects, has represented in the region and the Arab world for many decades, and indeed for millennia when you when you go there and you see the history of it, that Syria is a real melting pot, a crossroads, and an, a genuine nation that celebrates diversity. You know, you go to the center of Damascus and you see the Temple of Jupiter and the ancient Christian monuments and then the ancient Islamic monuments, and it's all together. It's all in the one spot, more or less. And the Syrians love that stuff, you know. So Syria has has long been this um, pluralistic nation which wants to keep it that way. For example, it doesn't want to become a religious state. It's it's resisted that very strongly, even though it's got strong relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's very much against the idea of having a religious state, and um, and most people support that in Syria. And then we move into the 21st century, and things change dramatically. Yeah, well, in the early 21st century, it seems that in Washington, the elite there had this idea of creating a new Middle East, which was announced by Condoleezza Rice in Israel in 2006, just before the Israelis carried out another invasion of of Lebanon, of southern Lebanon. And that idea of a new Middle East was to try and destroy effectively all of the uh, independent peoples and the states of the region and have them all under a the tutelage of the US through their main their main agents in the region Israel and the Saudis basically so that was a very ambitious thing and you might remember General Wesley Clark was spoke about them toppling seven governments in five years all of the ones that weren't effectively co-opted into the into the ambit already and it's a, it's a classical imperial strategy to try and dominate an entire region and then dictate the terms to any others outside the region. And by others, in this case, I mean other big powers. That Big powers only think of other big powers, basically. So by that, I mean Europe and Russia and China, for example. And this is under George W. Bush. Yeah, initially, this program under George W. Bush, and we saw those three invasions, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Lebanon, all serious gross crimes which caused enormous damage and I suppose in the wake of and in some respects using as a pretext the the attacks of New York of 2001 but nevertheless those three invasions um, shattered the region they moved a large part of the US military into the region for that period of time and then we saw a second phase basically of this new Middle East project taking the opportunity of the so-called Arab Spring of 2011. That was part of imperialism. How far did they think they were going to go? Well, they wanted to, they still want to, even though they know they're failing, to dominate the entire West Asian region, the Middle East region. And 
to control it effectively. And that was announced. The terms of it were spelt out. Um, the terms were modified somewhat when Obama, the Obama administration came into office and announced this new relationship with Islam in Cairo in 2009. And that meant that the the shift to what the liberal side of U.S. imperialism calls smart power, that is to say using proxies, having other people fight your wars, using ideological wars, economic wars and so on, but in particular using sectarian religion in this case to to use the jihadist hordes effectively from all parts of the world in Iraq and in Syria and in Libya uh, to some extent also to destroy those independent regimes, basically, and that that was their aim. Uh, it wasn't a secret. Um, we know now, as a result of all of the leaks and admissions over the last decade, that that was exactly what they wanted, that they wanted ISIS or Daesh, for example, to carve out a slice of Syria because that would weaken Damascus, and they wanted the same uh, al-Qaeda groups, uh, ISI, the Islamic State in Iraq, to damage and help fragment Iraq so that Baghdad wouldn't get close to Tehran. All of these things have been effectively admitted or leaked from official documents. Talk about how those fundamentalist groups uh, got started, because you've, you've named about five of them, but there's a lot more. And they've come from many countries, haven't they? These mercenaries, that's what they are, aren't they? Yeah, they're mercenaries, and they've used a as a front a... A religious extremism, you know, the idea of an Islamic state going back to the the Salafist sort of origins. You know, there's a philosophical branch um, or religious philosophy called Salafism that comes out of the Persian Gulf from the the Saudi area, for example, called Salafism, which is a vicious, uh, violent sectarianism, which is quite foreign to most societies in which which have had Islam, for example. But nevertheless. It's been very effective to divide people and to, and the British recognised that very early on when they more or less um, adopted the Saudi family as one of their key agents in the region back in the, back in the 1920s and the US inherited that in the 50s. There is a second branch of sectarian religion, sectarian Islam that comes from the Ikhwani or the Muslim Brotherhood which grew in Egypt and moved to Syria. And that's a rather broader movement, and it shares a lot with Salafism from Saudi Arabia, but it is also in competition. And that's really why you've seen this, these big tensions in recent years between Saudis and Qatar, for example, or Turkey and Saudi, for example, because the Muslim Brotherhood is basically a network of Sunni businessmen who had a secret society, effectively, because they were banned in Egypt, they were banned in Syria through their sectarian agenda and the assassinations that they in, engaged in, for example. And they also collaborated, this is important, they collaborated with the British state back as early as the 1940s in Egypt. So the the imperial power of the day, initially Britain in the Middle East and later on the US, saw this type of sectarianism, first of all, as a threat, but then as a opportunity to divide these areas because it's not possible for, for outside powers to control big populations, you know, the the Nazis wondered how the British could control India with so many people in India and, and part of the reason was that and it was this was also announced publicly and there was a Royal Commission into this after the first independence war in India in the eighteen fifties that they had to divide people, they had to use religion to divide people. 
And so they've used it relatively successfully in the Middle East too as a tool of, as I said, what the liberal side of US imperialism calls smart power or fourth generation war where proxy armies are more prevalent than open invasions of the early part of the century. And um, yeah, you mentioned how many. I mean, in Syria, it's been estimated that more than 300,000 foreigners have come to Syria, whether through religious motivation or mercenaries or a combination of the two. And there is some, there are some combinations of the two, similarly to Iraq, to a fair degree, because that's where ISIS or Daesh began, initiated by the Saudis, because if you look at all of the the philosophy and the actions and the vicious throat-cutting behaviour of ISIS, it's just a clone of the Saudis effectively. And even the US uh, revealed details of this back as early as about 2007 when they found that almost half the so-called al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State in Iraq, which later became ISIS, more than half of them were Saudis. And then they were recruiting from North Africa, you know, from Tunisia and Libya, for example, and all around the world. When it came to Syria, we had mainly people from the region, uh, as with in Iraq, but also then Europeans and all sorts, Australians, all sorts came over to to join that um, religious movement, effectively, which was uh, supported covertly by the U.S. and the, the current U.S. President Biden admitted seven years ago that all of those groups were armed and financed by the U.S. close allies, Turkey, the Saudis, the UAE, Qatar. Biden admitted that seven years ago. Were there also fighters coming from the former Soviet Union? Yes, that's right. In, from the southern states of the former Soviet Union, Chechnya, for example, some of the other, the stuns, so-called stuns in the south there, where there had been, of course, also a an insurrection, a sectarian religious insurrection in Chechnya, you may remember, which President Putin eventually uh, resolved in many respects, but not before they'd had um, huge conflict in Chechnya and also serious terrorism, which spilt over into um, other parts of Russia. The estimates of more than 300,000 include you know, families and so on, because, for example, the the financiers, um, let's let's use a, a, an example to make it a bit more concrete here, the financiers who were in the nature of this U.S. fourth generation war and smart power, financed by their very oil-rich uh, puppets in the Persian Gulf, the Saudis in particular, but also Qatar. And, you know, Qatar, uh, one of the former prime minister of Qatar admitted Many years ago, they they put several billion dollars into these groups in Syria, for example. But whether it was from Qatar, from Muslim Brotherhood source, or from the Salafists in the Saudi Arabia, they would have an intermediary here who would, for example, pay a young man ready to go and join either Jabhat al-Nusra or, or, or ISIS, go pass through Turkey to go into Syria. They would pay him something like $20,000, and he would take his whole family and children over there as well. So it was Gulf oil money, largely, that was um, financing this. You've got also British and U.S. money directly going into some of the propaganda operations. You know, for example, the White Helmets. We know that large amounts of money, many, many tens of millions of dollars from Britain in the first instance, and then also the U.S. went into financing that and um, other uh, pseudo NGOs, you know, the Aleppo Media Center, the Ghouta Media Center, the Syria campaign, 
pseudo-fact-checkers like Bellingcat and so on, funded by the National Endowment for Democracy and some British agencies, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights based in England, which is financed by British intelligence, you know, so... And French, the French also had a role there too, you know, because the US would use the British and the French as the former colonial powers with the, you know, the old networks that they had to use their influence in these, these wars. And, and that includes in, in Lebanon, of course, as well as in Syria and Iraq. There was a huge organized effort. Yeah, so the bulk of the money to recruit these international uh, jihadists, let's say, what came from the the Arab monarchies of the Persian Gulf, in other words, the ones that were completely untouched by this so-called wave of democracy in, in 2011. And uh, you don't have to take my word for it because the current U.S. President, Joe Biden, admitted that in October 2014. Go back, you'll see him on video saying it, that the hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of tons of weapons were provided to all of the jihadist groups, whatever their names were, because there was, you know, there were, as you said, many dozens of names of them, um, including Nusra, including ISIS, came from their allies, from Turkey, from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia and Qatar and so on. So Biden is just one of those who admitted it. Also, the former head of the army, Martin Dempsey, admitted it. Uh, this, this stuff is all out there now after all these years. Uh, it's no secret. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station. Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson. Also part of the organised effort on Syria was the media and is still the media to keep yeah. up the pretense that this is a, a civil war. Yeah. Can you talk about that? That's right. In fact, um, of course, that's reflected very much in the ubiquitous Wikipedia. If you go to online, it will talk about the Syrian civil war as a civil war, um, even though Syria is occupied by two NATO armies and, and Israel. In other words, three foreign armies are there. It's been openly admitted many years ago that all of these um, al-Qaeda-type groups have been financed by the, the allies of the U.S., but still they insist on calling it a, a civil war. Now, this is interesting because it reflects on the sort of media we have, doesn't it? Uh, in my view, there are some very clear boundaries or let's say red lines that the corporate media and the state media, and there's not too much difference between them um, in our country, there's some very clear red lines here that they can't cross. They can criticise things, but they can't really fully expose or question the legitimacy of the entire project there while it is in train. And I think that's why there's such a great effort to try and maintain a lot of the myths that after all they've, that media, that same media has committed itself to over the years, as opposed to, for example, Libya, where you see something rather different there because now that Libya has been destroyed and it has open air slave markets and it's a basket case and it's gone backwards from being the country with the, the highest living standards in Africa to one of the worst, they've been able to admit those sorts of things. You see in U.S. journals, you see even from President, former President Obama admissions that this was a disaster in, in different forms, that they, the way that they want to put it and so on. But because Syria is a live, ongoing effort, that is to say the U.S. wants to destroy an independent state in Syria and either break it into fragments if it can't actually control 
a new regime in Damascus, the corporate media has an extraordinary uh, loyalty to, you know, and, and a very deep bias. I call it the colonial media, really, because all this panorama of corporate media and state media have support every single intervention, every single war. In the Middle East, in the last two decades, we've seen at least seven or eight wars, and you won't find a serious critical analysis of any of them in those media. They simply fall into line and support every single intervention. You've talked about the various foreign fighters. Can you also talk about the Free Syrian Army? Who are they? Well, the Free Syrian Army never existed as an army. It was a, a supply of money and, to some extent, weapons um, that was set up by the Muslim Brotherhood networks supported by the US, effectively. And by Muslim Brotherhood networks, I mean in the early days of the conflict, in the recent conflict in Syria, it was Qatar and Turkey in particular that were supporting that network. And under that umbrella, or you might say the Free Syrian Army was a quartermastering role where they allocated finance and weapons to to different groups and they had different names like the Farouk Brigade and the Martyrs of Hamar and all these sorts of um, evocative names basically with um, some link to you know extreme religious views basically and calling it a revolution. But there wasn't ever really a, a Free Syrian Army. It was a, it was a network which was supplied and those channels of finance and weapons moved around from time to time. So, for example, some of the young, mainly Lebanese men that went from from Sydney to Turkey and then into Syria, they thought when they left they were going to Jabhat al-Nusra. When they arrived, they were diverted into Daesh, into ISIS in, in the eastern part of Syria. So these uh, these organisations sort of shifted and, and embassies changed, basically. And after a while... You know, there were particular brigades supported by Qatar, some supported by UAE, some supported by Turkey, some supported by the Saudis, and at times they cooperated and other times they competed for weapons. And that's why you see there were really, there were literally dozens of different groups vying for influence. Can I take you back to the, the white helmets and the role the media has played in keeping them alive? Well, this, the White Helmets are something directly set up by a former British Army guy and directly funded by the British government and later on the US government as well and I think also one of the other European governments, perhaps Denmark. So even though that was openly demonstrated somehow and through Hollywood and other, other media commitments, basically, uh, this myth that they were some sort of Syrian organization persisted basically it's an extraordinary feat in a way of propaganda of war propaganda to pretend that this group which was set up as a front group a PR group effectively for the the various um, al-Qaeda groups or the free Syrian army groups let's say persisted with the idea that they were genuine somehow it's extraordinary we have videos years ago of them staging incidents we have videos of them with weapons and waving al-Nusra, al-Qaeda flags. We have, um, there are online, what do you call it, caches of photographs of the same people wearing the, the white helmet uniform and in another guise changing their uniform and, wear, and carrying weapons with uh, the al-Qaeda groups. I mean, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. 
But if you go to Google and you put in white helmets, you'll find in the, you know, in the first ranking, the first few pages, unless you get very specific, you'll find all of these um, glowing reports that these are the heroes, you know, who are out there saving children's lives and so on, because they set themselves up that way. Uh, of course, they took pictures of themselves, um, you know, carrying children down the street and so on. But very few people, very few in the corporate media ever bothered to get behind that. They really just swallowed it entirely because it was the official line, because it was openly the official line and also funded, as I said, by the British government and the US government. The, the failure of the corporate media there is, is an extraordinary thing, something that deserves more attention, I believe. And the fact that they replayed these photos of children being dragged out at different places and it was the same children each time. Yeah, there were an extraordinary number of you know, fake photographs and obviously staged photographs. And you might remember there was one where there was a rehearsal of uh, the rescuing of a man from the rubble, and it was like, and they released some pre-edits of it where the, the people were all sitting there waiting to act, and then after after the cue was given, the man started groaning and the people started doing things. I mean, there was an extraordinary amount of documentary evidence on how fake this whole process was and of course the white helmets themselves disappeared from the scene as soon as those um, jihadist groups were eliminated they disappeared they don't exist anywhere in Syria except where there are those jihadist groups and they they have been praised by the openly by the leaders of the jihadist groups like the Saudi leader Mohaisini and uh, some of the others as soldiers of the revolution and just as praiseworthy as the as the jihadists themselves because they were supporting the you know the sectarian revolution that al-qaeda was promising is it true that over those 10 years turkey has been on and off supporting what the west has been doing in syria and what do they hope to get out of it so mr erdogan at least if we step back from talking about turkey but mr erdogan who has introduced a very strong current of uh, Muslim Brotherhood politics or say re-sectarianizing Turkey where in its roots it was supposedly a more secular state after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Mr Erdogan has really been exercising his ambitions to try and annex parts of northern Syria and northern Iraq. That's going on as we speak. I mean uh, Turkish troops are positioned right across the north of Syria and into uh, northern Iraq and with the pretext of fighting Kurds in both countries and you may may have noticed that uh, he has also sent his um, proxies from uh, northern Syria to Libya to contribute to the construction of a Muslim Brotherhood government in Libya too which is in a state of you know civil war with a large number of outside interventions at the same time basically Libya is a is a huge mess at the moment so Erdogan has and he also has some ambitions with Lebanon too. It might be said that he's trying to find a way into the the destruction of Lebanon, which effectively has been carried out because the US and Israel are so upset by the fact that the resistance led by Hezbollah is now the dominant force in Lebanese politics. And that's really the underlying reason behind the destruction of the Lebanese economy and, and the, the disaster that is Lebanon these days. It's under this type of soft power hybrid war attack too. But Mr Erdogan wants influence there too. So in a sense, 
it's been said that he's trying to resurrect the Ottoman, uh, you know, or create a neo-Ottoman neo situation where he will be the leader of the this Muslim Brotherhood network in the entire region, but, you know, including by direct military occupation of northern Syria and northern Iraq and, of course, um, sustaining all of those groups, large numbers still in northwest Syria, in Idlib. And the roles of Iran and Russia? So Iran and Russia are effective counterweights. They are really very significant counterweights and some of the main, probably the main reasons why the US hasn't got its way in the region. Iran is the, uh, why there's all this obsession with Iran from Israel and from the US. It's not really to do with nuclear weapons because they have their influence in other ways other than that and their missiles are, are probably far, far more discriminate and direct and more of a threat than any uh, possible future nuclear weapons that are fantasized about. But the influence of Iran in the region is extraordinary and very important. Remember, Iran is a much bigger country than Iraq or Syria or Yemen or Lebanon or Palestine. But Iran is supporting the resistance in all of those countries. Iran is directly arming the Palestinian resistance, giving weapons to the Palestinians to defend themselves against the the constant ethnic cleansing that's going on in Palestine. Um, it's supported openly Hezbollah, the resistance in southern Lebanon against Israel trying to annex more of southern Lebanon. And Hezbollah was the force that effectively drove Israel out of Lebanon twice, uh, you know, eventually in 2000 and in 2006. And Iran is a strong ally of Syria, even though Syria is a non-religious state. And Iran is supporting the resistance in um, in Iraq, which you saw, of course, the resentment of that from the U.S. when they murdered the the national, the big national heroes of both Iraq and Iran, uh, Muhandis and Soleimani, a year ago. So Iran's role is fundamental there in the region, and Russia, of course, has come in as a an outside player to some extent. Although Russia's rationale is that they are also defending. Russia from this sectarian Islam being used against uh, Russia in the southern regions. But of course they see you know, an opportunity for countering the US influence in the region too, which is clearly hostile to Russia. So Russia, for example, is, is deepening its military bases in Syria at the moment in the port area on the Mediterranean, but also they're setting up a more substantial air base in the center of Syria and Palmyra. So Russia and Iran generally important counterweights to this overwhelming, corrosive new Middle East plan, which has destroyed millions of people, millions of people, and, and aims to destroy the independent states in the region. Really, it's the greatest crime of the 21st century, the, the series of wars that are all interconnected in the Middle East. And um, it's only because there are some significant counterweights there through Iran and through Russia that... Uh, the U.S. hasn't got its way and the region would be dominated by Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, the two most sectarian, vicious regimes of the region. As you just said, it's the people in the area who have suffered the most and continue to suffer. What is and what has been the situation for the, the bulk of the people of Syria over those 10 years? Well, in some respects, the last uh, U.S. administration of Trump deepen the economic war, um, which is really hurting the people of Syria, not just the people of Syria, the people of Syria, the people of Lebanon, 
and to some extent the people of Iraq, and of course, let's remember the ongoing siege of Palestine and of Yemen. Now, Yemen being the one genuine successful revolution of the Arab Spring period has been viciously crushed, created the worst humanitarian situation in the region. So let's not forget Yemen there, the one genuine successful revolution that came out of the Arab Spring. Now, the people of Yemen and the people of Syria, for example, have resisted um, this long period of time against tremendous odds. So they've suffered for the sake of maintaining their independence. And the, the one bright light there, you might say, I suppose, is the fact that this series of wars are welding a type of unity, first of all militarily and now economically between the peoples of that region. You, know, you now have a fairly close military cooperation between Iran, Iraq and Syria, for example, and you have bonds between those countries that really are being strengthened in economic ways too. Russia and China are playing a very important role there too, but effectively the region is being transformed by this ongoing series of wars really of the of the 21st century. We're now entering year 11. What can you see for the near future? I think really we're entering the third decade of the new Middle East wars. I think it's better to see it as the new Middle East war project and that the Arab, the so-called Arab Spring was simply a second phase of that project. You know, we had the, the three invasions I mentioned in the first decade and then we've had effectively the fourth generation wars against Libya and Syria and Iraq and then the, the siege and the assaults on Palestine and Yemen. And if we don't see them all connected, we're really missing something important there. So I think we're entering a third decade of this failing new Middle East war. Now, here's an interesting thing. The U.S. is clearly failing in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, and it knows that it's failing. And what some of the senior Syrian people said to me when I was last there about 18 months ago is that they are carrying on with this, and Mr. Erdogan in Turkey is carrying on with his ambition to try and annex large parts of Syria and Iraq, for example, in some respects out of spite, you know, to punish the people that have defeated their ambitions, really. The U.S. is not able to accept defeat very easily. Um, I remember the, the Vietnam War in that case. You know, the U.S. knew that it was losing in Vietnam in the late 60s, and that's why the Paris Peace Talks began in 1968. But the U.S. didn't withdraw from Vietnam until 1975, during which time they'd bombed a couple of other countries, Laos and Cambodia, for example. They'd killed many more than a million other people, you know. So there's a, there's a terrible price to pay that people pay for resistance, but the US is simply not able to lose gracefully. And many thanks to Dr Tim Anderson.